Welcome to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. This episode, we're heading to San Luis Obispo County, a picture-perfect, fertile stretch of California's central coast. We'll start off with Jason Haas, partner and general manager of Tablas Creek Vineyard in Paso Robles. It certainly makes our French partners jealous a lot of the time. They come here and look at the weather conditions, look at the soil maps, and they're like, man, there's no reason why we shouldn't make a perfect wine here every year. After that, Hearst Castle's Jim Allen delves into the fascinating history of the former estate of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst and how it all started when his father, George Hearst, struck it rich during the gold rush. One of the things he did with that little bag of nickels was to go to one of his favorite places on the California coast, about halfway between LA and San Francisco, modern day San Simeon, and buy about 40,000 acres of land there. And in Cayucas, Moonshiner Collective lead singer Dan Curcio serenades us with music inspired by sunny, slow county vibes. That's all coming up on California Now. My next guest is Jason Haas, partner and general manager of Tablas Creek Vineyard in Paso Robles, where he says there's no finer place to be growing and producing California wines. Winemaking is in Jason's blood. He's a second-generation vintner dedicated to making the industry organic and sustainable. Jason, welcome to California Now. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So, you know, Tablas Creek Vineyard has a sterling reputation in the wine world. Can you give us uh, the origin story? Sure. So we are a partnership equally owned and run by two families. One of the families is my family. My dad was a wine importer for his main adult career. He founded a company called Vineyard Brands. The other family is the Perrin family from Chateau de Beaucastel in Chateau neuf du Pape in the Rhone Valley in the south of France. They had worked together as importer and producer for three decades before becoming convinced by trips to California that the California climate should be a great place for the same grapes that they knew and loved from, from the south of France. So in 85, the two families got together and, and put together the partnership and started looking for the right spot. And four years later, 1989, we bought 120 acres here in the hills west of Paso Robles. We had to start by importing vine cuttings from France. So that took us a couple of years. We got vines on the ground starting in 94. We had our first vintage in 97. And ever since then, we've been doing red and white and rosé blends of Rhone grapes like whites like Viognier and Grenache Blanc and Roussan and Marsan and reds like Grenache, Syrah, Morvedre, Cunoise and Sanso. Right. You're, you're basically growing like 16 different varietals, or right? I mean, and you've pioneered eight of them, I've read. Yeah, we did. Um, that's the thing about working with grapes that, are, that are, are fairly obscure is that sometimes you get to be the first, at least the first outside of France. So yeah, <laughs> eight times we've brought in grapes that nobody here had worked with before, had to get them approved by the federal government before we could put them on a label and, and then get to explore how they adapt to this new place. Right. And you're also a pioneer in the fact that Tablas Creek was one of the first wineries to set down roots in Paso. And you've been central to the winemaking scene ever since. So what makes Paso Robles so special for winemaking? Well, there were three things that really attracted us to this place. 
The first was the climate here in Paso. And it's it's hot and sunny during the day, but quite cold at night. We're separated from the Pacific Ocean by one range of mountains. So we're only 20 miles away from, from the Pacific as the crow flies. But that gives us the ability to warm up. We don't get a lot of the, the coastal fog. But we have a super long growing season, cold nights, wet winters, and, and hot, dry summers. And grapevines just love that. The, the second thing we were looking for was enough rainfall to farm without having to irrigate, or at least in the long term without having to irrigate. And you need about, you really need 20 inches of rain a year or more. You're much happier if you average 25. And because of our altitude, we're at 1,500 feet elevation and that proximity to the ocean, we average 28 inches of rain a year, which is a huge luxury. And then finally, the last thing is that this is one of the relatively few parts of California where you can find limestone near the surface. And those kind of chalky calcareous soils are common in a lot of the great wine growing regions around the world, but they're, they're really prized for good reason. They do lots of great stuff, both in terms of the, the physiology and the chemistry of the grapes when you grow them in that kind of, those kind of rocks. So basically you've found a spot on earth that kind of out France's France, right? On, on several <laughs> counts. Um, it, it certainly, it certainly makes our French partners jealous. A lot of the time they come here and look at the weather conditions, look at the soil maps, and they're like, man, like, there's no reason why we shouldn't make a perfect wine here every year, which of course I feel as like no pressure, but um, <laughs> no, it is great. The conditions here are amazing. Um, and we have the chance to make something tremendous really every year. That's really great. I mean, can you tell us about Tablas Creek's approach to organic farming and sustainability? Sure. Um, when we started Tablas Creek. We inherited a commitment to organic farming from our partners at Bocastel. They've been fully organic since the 1950s. And they, they farm organically because they believe that it's really the, the best possible way to make wines that taste like the place in which they're grown. We felt like if we're trying to show off our own place, what the, what the French call terroir, that the best chance we had to do that was to farm organically. But we realized as we got deeper into this particular challenge that what we should be doing is not just replacing chemical inputs with non-chemical inputs, but trying to figure out how we eliminate anything that has to come on from the outside. So that means instead of bringing in organic fertilizer, can we create our own fertility with our own cover crops and our own flock of sheep? Can we create habitat that attracts the kind of predatory insects that will keep the pests under control? We've ended up Moving from organic to something which is called biodynamic farming, which is basically the conscious creation of an ecosystem that that provides the balance that you need, and more recently into a new protocol called regenerative organic, which we joined the pilot program of back in 2018 and became the first winery to get the new certification in 2020. And for us, regenerative organic takes all of the best pieces of biodynamics, this focus on soil health and biodiversity the microbial activity in the soil then adds to that requirements to reduce your use of shared resources like groundwater and non-renewable energy, um, and then separate pillars on animal welfare and on farm worker fairness, which we think is a really critical thing about, about, about great farming. So, so that's what we are now. We're, we're certified organic, biodynamic, and regenerative organic. Well, let's talk about the visitor experience at Tablas Creek. I mean, what would it be like if I showed up at the winery for a tasting, say? If you showed up for a tasting, uh, we would ask you if you wanted to sit inside or outside. Um, we have this, this kind of cascade of patios outside our, 
our tasting room. And then we've got a series of bars inside that look into the cellar and try to show off the winemaking piece of what we do. Beyond that, we would see if you wanted to taste a selection of reds, a selection of whites, or a mix of reds and whites. And then we'd bring them out in, in flights and try to, try to get you behind the scenes. We, we really believe in education. We know that we're making grapes that a lot of people aren't that familiar with yet. And we're, we're putting them together in ways that we think benefit from some explanation. We do focus on education. We do focus on trying to give people some history and, and some grape growing and winemaking knowledge along with their, along with their tastes of wine. And uh, hopefully, hopefully you'd leave having learned about a new category of, of grapes and the category of wines and fallen in love with a few favorites. Yeah, I, I enjoy wine, but I'm certainly not a connoisseur. Um, the, the director of our podcast here is a, is a major wine obsessive. Would we both find something to enjoy if we visited your estate? Yeah, I really think so. And one of the things that, that we love to do is actually get people out of the tasting room and into the vineyard. We do tours every day and we get people out into the organic vineyard, down to the grapevine nursery that we had to had to start when we were bringing our grapevines in from France, take people through the cellar. If it's harvest time, try to share with them what's going on there. So so yeah, so whether you're you're coming to a winery for the first time and you want to know how the process all works, or whether you're a regular visitor to wine country and you want to dive deep into the esoterica of obscure grape varieties and uh, native yeasts and large barrels. You get something for everything, and we we do everything we can to make people feel at home with whatever level of knowledge they come with. We're not uh, demanding that people um, have passed their introductory sommelier exam before uh, <laughs> we're going to offer them a tasting. Are there other wineries springing up around Paso that are doing innovative things? Are any that have impressed or inspired you? Oh, for sure. Um, I I love the other wineries here who have been really pioneering in of environmental ways and a couple of the other wineries that are also regenerative organic certified include via creek um, and booker um, i know robert hall winery has already applied in the application process i know turley has been organic and biodynamic for a long time i always love giving shout outs to them i love the the wineries who are exploring some of the more unusual varieties. So if you're interested in Italian varieties, we'll send people to Giornata wines. If you're looking um, for some of the old heritage varieties, people working with Zinfandel and Petit Syrah and Carignan and things like that, um, we'll send people to to wineries like Thatcher and Peachy Canyon. And then of course there's this great Rhone tradition here. So um, whether you're looking for these richer, more kind of cult-driven, uh, powerful, luscious wines, if so, then you've got wineries like Epic and Torin and Saxum and Kaliza here for for people to go to. Um, and then there's the the kind of lighter side of things too, wineries like Jay Ducey or Ambeth or all the all the little guys who are who are in collective tasting rooms downtown. So there's there's a ton of different stuff here for for people to enjoy. I think a lot of people don't realize that the Central Coast has such a rich and extensive kind of like wine producing culture. I mean, yeah, there's a thousand wineries between San Francisco and Los Angeles, um, and I think people maybe realized that a little bit when Sideways came out, whenever that was, 15 years ago. Yeah, but. Paso is really the largest concentration of those wineries and with 
close to 300 wineries here and a dozen different soil types and a bunch of different microclimates, 11 sub AVAs that were, were approved about 10 years ago now. I mean, there's really, it's an incredibly diverse area and it has both the advantage and the disadvantage of not being associated with just one grape variety. So you've got this long Rhone tradition here. You've got a tradition of, of Zinfandel, and these heritage varieties. You've got this great Cabernet and Bordeaux variety tradition that's sprouted up in the last 10, 15 years as well. And they all kind of coexist and interact and interweave in ways that I think produce some of the most interesting and unexpected results of any wine region in, in the state. It's pretty impressive, uh, the wine culture in the Central Coast. But let's go beyond wine right now, Jason. I mean, you're a longtime resident of the Central Coast. What do you like about living there? So I love the access that it has to the outdoors. I mean, I love that I'm a 20-minute drive from the ocean to end up in the little beach towns of Cayucos or Morro Bay or Cambria. We're like half an hour from Hearst Castle, which is really cool to have that incredible resource that's there. Then there's a lot of stuff that happens in the towns themselves. We're only half an hour, 40 minutes north of San Luis Obispo and the great college town that's there and the great performing arts center that's there. Um, and then you've got the local the local farming community. I love the farmer's markets that are here. The Templeton Farmer's Market on, on Saturday mornings is a is a regular stop. The San Luis Obispo Farmer's Market, which is as much street fair as it is farmer's market on Thursday evenings, is a great experience for people who want to go. Um, and then, of course, there's the there's the incredible restaurant scene that's here. Yeah, I was, I was wondering if you might be able to help us fill out yeah, like a perfect weekend in Paso. Like, what should we do? If we come to town besides, you know, grabbing a case of your wine. <laughs> well, the case, of, the case of wine can accompany most of these activities. <laughs> um, so I would, I would say that you'd certainly want to dedicate one of the days to going out wine tasting. It really is an incredible place to do that. And you can do it in a way that really explores the different environments here. I, I love the loop that we're on, which is basically going west from Paso Robles on Adelaide Road. And then you can go south east back from Tablas Creek on Vineyard Drive, which will take you to the town of Templeton. And there's probably 30 or 40 tasting rooms on those two roads that you could stop at. But depending on the the sorts of wines that you enjoy, and, and a great place to start with that is the Paso Robles Wine Country Alliance website, which is pasowine.com, where you can build an itinerary that suits the kinds of wines you want to explore. So I definitely take a, take a day to do that. I would grab a picnic at one of the one of the many good spots that allow you to do that my favorite is di Ramundo's, um, which is an Italian kind of Italian market and cheese shop in Paso Robles grab a picnic grab one of their great sandwiches head out um, visit maybe a winery in the morning have a picnic lunch and a couple of wineries in the afternoon then come back into into town hit one of the the good restaurants that I mentioned maybe, Stop at another one or two places to to grab a glass of wine beforehand. There's a a cool kind of mini San Francisco Ferry Plaza kind of communal uh, market called the the Paso Robles Market Walk, which is on 17th Street, which has a great wine bar there, the Paso Robles Wine Merchant, where you can grab a a glass of local wine and explore a couple other local vendors before you you head out to dinner. Um, have dinner someplace. And then I would 
take the next day, I'd take your Sunday and spend it outside. Either take one of the one of the many hiking trails that are around here, go road biking or mountain biking, or head over to the beach. What's your favorite beach in the area? We almost always bring our dog to the beach. Um, so my favorite beach is Cayucos because those are that's a dog friendly beach. I also like that it's relatively uncrowded. It's this sort of wide beach you can come and toss a frisbee or a football if you want, or or obviously play fetch with uh, with your dog if that's your thing. I mean, there are other the other local beaches out here. I mean, the the beaches in um, Avila Beach is probably the most classic kind of Southern California beach towny beach. A little warmer there, um, usually sunny, nice soft sand. So that's a that's another favorite. Let's dig down a little bit uh, on the restaurant scene. Do you have any favorite places? that you find yourself going back to time and time again to grab a meal? My favorites among the the older guard, I mean, really, I go back to Bistro Laurent, I mean, every six months or so, and I feel like I have for 20 years. It's always terrific. And Laurent himself is still there most nights cooking. What are some of your go-to dishes when you go there? He does a beautiful uh, steak au poivre, which I really love, with a, a green peppercorn sauce. And the, the steak frites is a classic. He also does a, a really beautiful kind of Alsatian-style tart with uh, smoked salmon, which is really terrific. What are some other places? Yeah, another place that I, I really love and we go back to again and again um, is The Hatch. It's a, it's a cool restaurant in its own right. They do a lot of, the, a lot of their cooking is done in uh, this open wood fire. Um, you've got things that have a little bit of a Southern tinge to some of the flavors. They have a great, uh, a great cornbread appetizer sort of drizzled with honey, a little bit spicy. That's, that's always really fun. Um, and then in terms of the, the new, some of the newer places, I really love Les Petites Canailles, which I think is, I think it's just firing on all cylinders right now. I think it's one of the best restaurants on the central coast. It's uh, chef owner is Julian Aseo, the, the son of, Laventure Winery founder and winemaker, Stefano Seo. It's this kind of slightly upscale, but you'd, you'd never feel uncomfortable if you showed up in jeans, kind of French brasserie. The food is, is fun as well as delicious. They do a kind of semi-permanent special appetizer, which they call bougie tater tots. These like homemade tater tots with um, caviar and this yummy sort of uh, aioli over them that is this incredible blend of like high and low culture and just delicious. Right. It sounds like you have a lot of choices. Yes, though I would say that nothing is fancy enough that you'd feel uncomfortable showing up in jeans. And that's one right, of the things right. I really like about Paso is that the experience can be elevated, but it doesn't feel like exclusive or uncomfortable ever. Right. I think that's a California thing. You know, lodging is always such a big part of a vacation. Are there any hotels or inns uh, you could point listeners to? There are. The The first really great downtown hotel to open up in Paso maybe 15 years ago and is still one of the great small boutique hotels that I've seen anywhere in the country is called Hotel Cheval. Um, it's like half a block off of the square downtown. So it's walking distance to all of the restaurants. And I think it's 17 rooms. And it's just lovely. If people can find a spot there, they should. They also have a an inexpensive, like a, a, a slightly fancified motel that they bought and renovated a couple of years ago called The Stables, um, which is fun. 
Both sound really great. How about one more? So the other really cool downtown hotel that I, I like to recommend is called the Piccolo. Um, it is also about a block off of the downtown square. It's kind of cool, slightly more modern, a little bit bigger than the Hotel Cheval. Lovely rooms, cool rooftop bar, and it has a champagne vending machine in the lobby. And really, how can you not go right with that? Oh, that's amazing. I've never seen one of those. I'm going to have to try that out. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Well, Jason, you, you've given us so many great suggestions. Thanks so much for joining us on California Now. Totally my pleasure. Thank you for wanting to talk about Tablas Creek and about Paso Robles. Jason Haas is the partner and general manager of Tablas Creek Vineyard in Paso Robles. To learn more about Tablas Creek wines or their sustainability practices, visit tablas, T-A-B-L-A-S, creek.com. That's tablascreek.com. This is California Now. Located only a few hours from both Southern and Northern California, Pismo Beach is the true classic California beach town, famous for its historic pier, miles of beautiful white sand beaches, outstanding accommodations, and a rich wine region minutes away. For more information and to book your stay, go to experiencepismobeach.com. That's experiencepismobeach.com to find out more and to book your stay. few people who know more about Hearst Castle than my next guest. Jim Allen is the Director of Marketing and Communications at the iconic San Simeon destination, once the opulent estate of newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. He's been telling the stories of Hearst Castle for 35 years now. Located just off Highway 1, the state park is known for its eclectic architecture, vast art collection, spectacular ocean views, and as Jim will tell you, enough history to fill a massive 345,000-gallon pool. Jim, welcome to California Now. Thank you, Soterios. Delighted to be here. So let's start with what is Hearst Castle? I mean, why is it such an iconic California attraction? Well, I think one of the things that draws people to it is everybody shares this fantasy of building their their own dream home. And people know that this is the story of a place that was somebody's dream house. And everybody likes to come and see how at least one person did it and uh, spend a good two or three hours roaming through the castle. It's a, the estate, the visitor center and our exhibits, as well as the, the hilltop castle itself. I mean, to call it a dream house kind of sounds like an understatement to me. I mean, this place is kind of like a dream house on steroids, right? I mean, it's pretty amazing. It is. Uh, interesting historical context that there were many homes like this built during this time period in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century when business moguls such as Hearst and Vanderbilt and Morgan and John Jacob Astor were establishing the the groundwork for American business as we were roaring into the 20th century as world leaders, both 
well, on, on every scale as communicators, facilitating business, facilitating banking, transportation. America was becoming a powerhouse. And so the those captains of industry, like the people I mentioned, were building these extraordinary sumptuous homes throughout the United States, but very few of them in California. Let's talk a little bit more about Hearst Castle's rich history. Uh, newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst built the house, but the story doesn't start with him. It actually starts with his father, George Hearst, who bought the property after striking it rich in the gold rush. Tell us more about this origin story. Yeah, we could even take a little half step back from there and early California history where the gold rush starts drawing people to California and the West for the discovery of gold and silver and other precious metals, where Mr. Hearst's father, George, travels from his home in rural Missouri in 1850 to California. And after about 10 years, about 1859, I believe it was, he and six other partners found what's commonly referred to as the Comstock Lode, one of the richest discoveries of silver in American history to date. This first strike made him about three and a half million dollars in today's dollars, pure profit. And one of the things he did with that little bag of nickels was to go to one of his favorite places on the California coast, about halfway between LA and San Francisco, modern day San Simeon, and buy about 40,000 acres of land there that he planned. He had other business plans for, but never did develop and instead took his family camping there. This is where young William Randolph Hearst would gradually have a tradition of coming with his parents camping throughout his youth. And as he grew to maturity and married and had children, took his family camping there. And then once his uh, parents passed away, as you mentioned, he was an only child. So he inherited those 40,000 acres of land and decided that uh, as he was pushing 60, that the charms of camping were wearing thin and wanted to build something much more extravagant and enjoyable as a place to come and enjoy his time. And that's how uh, Hearst Hassel would begin in 1919. How did it develop from what was basically a campground to this amazing estate? Well, as I say, I, he was uh, an only child and his mother took him on a, a trip, his first trip to Europe when he was only age 10. And that really sparked his interest in the larger world in art, in history, and he started collecting art at that young, tender age. And he was looking for a unique place, not only as a, a place to have privacy for himself and his guests, but also as sort of a show place for the extravagant art collection that he would acquire over the course of his lifetime. Can you tell us about some of the most famous pieces you can see when you visit? Sure, there's about 20,000 works of art. Um, one of my favorites, and one of them a piece of art that I think has a fabulous view herself is a representation of the goddess Sekhmet, probably the oldest work of art at Hearst Castle, about 3,600 years old, is looking out south from one of the terraces over this unspoiled panoramic view of the Pacific Ocean, miles and miles of wide open, beautiful beachside property. And the castle itself, I mean, the architecture of Hearst Castle is pretty phenomenal. Can you tell us about, you know, Hearst's work with architect Julia Morgan and what inspired kind of the, the castle's unique style? Julia Morgan was a California native, a Bay Area architect. Mr. Hearst was also born in San Francisco. So it is a very 
California-created entity. The architectural style was very popular at that, is, is an extension of the, the popular Mediterranean revival style of the time. And it's also very interesting that, you know, Julia Morgan was probably one of a handful, maybe the only female architect, you know, in California or maybe even in the U.S. at the time. It's very unusual for a woman to be an architect back in, you know, 1919 or 1920. How did Hearst end up uh, hiring her? Miss Morgan had already done some work for Mr. Hearst and for his mother, Phoebe Amberson Hearst on a number of projects, so they were already well acquainted with the quality of her work and her abilities, both as an engineer and as an architect. And it wasn't that unusual for William Randolph Hearst to to hire women. I believe he hired the first woman newspaper editor in the United States, hired one of the first woman war correspondents. Either intentionally or not, he certainly understood that the best thing to do is hire the person that knows how to do what needs to be done rather than being concerned with whether or not it was traditional for them to be in that role or not. And, you know, during its heyday uh, as a residence, the castle was uh, quite the celebrity magnet. I, I heard Hearst had a private airstrip built on the property so his guests could come and go easily. Can you share some stories about legendary happenings at Hearst Castle? Who are some of the most notable guests? The Barrymores, Lionel and John Barrymore, Charlie Chaplin, Gary Cooper, Joan Crawford, Doug Fairbanks Jr., Errol Flynn, Clark Gable, you know, read like a, a who's who of Hollywood of the day, the Cary Grants, Gene Harlow, Harold Lloyd, uh, producers, Jack Warner from Warner Brothers, like I say, just all the stars of the day, Mary Pickford and so forth, uh, political leaders like Winston Churchill, art experts like Lord Devine, William Valentiner, writers like George Bernard Shaw. Mm, pretty amazing. And of course, we know that Hearst Castle is now a California state park. So how did it go from being this opulent personal residence to becoming a tourist destination? Mr. Hearst was born in 1863, passed away in 1951 at the age of 88. And he left, as you might imagine, a rather complex will. And in that will, it contained a uh, directive that his descendants, he had five sons, that they create a monument of sorts to his mother, who inspired his interest in hard work, in learning, in art, in history, in collecting. And after several years, the family came to the conclusion, rather than building a new museum or a new place or a new monument, why not take this place, which has the the opportunity to tell this story in a way that no other place could, and donate it as a gift to the people of California to make it into a museum open to the public. And they did just that. It opened for tours in June of 1958. And we've had uh, over 42 million people visit since then. What's something that people tend not to know about Hearst Castle? Well, one of the things that people find surprising and delightful is when they're driving along Highway 1, or when they're riding from the visitor center in one of our coaches up to the hilltop, is periodically someone will receive a tap on the shoulder and say, is that a zebra? Because indeed, he did have a wild game preserve on 2,000 acres. He had animals from all over the world, as well as an art collection. He had an animal collection. Most of the zoo was disbanded in the 30s during the Great Depression. But 
wild animals being wild animals have made their ways in nooks and crannies in the hillsides. And some of those descendants are still roaming the hillsides today. Zebra, as I mentioned, uh, the tar goats from the Atlas Mountains of Morocco, they're sort of an exotic mountain goat, um, white fallow deer from India. And then you realize you're in the middle of a, a cattle ranch, a California cattle ranch. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about visiting the castle for people who are interested in going. In order to get on the grounds, you have to take an official tour, right? That's right. And you can hop onto our website at hearstcastle.org or call a toll-free number and make a reservation. And then when you arrive, when you come into the visitor center, there's a ticket window and you can pick up your wristbands or tickets and you'd board a bus for a trip to the hilltop. But I have a an insider tip that your listeners might find of interest. I'd suggest getting there about an hour and a quarter before your tour time. And here's why. We put together a 40-minute giant screen film about what inspired Hearst Castle, how it was built. And admission to this 400-seat theater and seeing this film is included in your ticket price. Not everybody remembers that and gets a chance to see it. So I would come first, see the movie, then come out and uh, board your bus and go up the hill for the tour. And you'll ride about five miles from sea level winding your way up to this uh, hilltop estate. As I said, it's about a five-mile drive. And as soon as you step off the bus, you're met by, your group is met by a tour guide who will escort you throughout your tour experience, both indoors and outdoors. You know, Jim, the Hearst Castle website lists at least a dozen different options for tours. What's the most popular tour that you offer and what can visitors expect to see on that tour? Well, the Grand Rooms Tour is a great introductory tour. It's our most popular tour for first-time visitors. And it gives you an overview of the entire estate. Um, you'll see the, the Grand Social Rooms, as I mentioned, that first big assembly room where the guests would gather in the early evening for cocktails and hors d'oeuvres before going into the dining hall for dinner. So you'll see the principal rooms on the ground level of the main house, the outdoor Neptune pool which is just absolutely amazing. I mean, you're looking at art objects and architectural elements that date back to ancient Rome. And then also an indoor pool, which I'll tell you, my parents took me there as a child when I was eight years old. I am no longer eight years old, but I remember both of those swimming pools from long before I came back to work here. It made such an impression on me. This indoor pool has two million hand-cut glass tiles from Venice, Italy. Took five years just to do this one swimming pool. That's pretty amazing. Tell us about another one of the popular tours. I mean, I hear there's one that goes through the upstairs suites where the Hollywood and political elite stayed over. Yeah, the upstairs suites tour takes you through the upper center levels of Casa Grande, including Mr. Hearst's private Gothic suite. So you'll see on that tour, something that most guests to Hearst Castle in its heyday of the roaring 20s and fabulous 30s never saw themselves. This was only accessible by Mr. Hearst and select guests, usually his business associates or family members would see his private library, meeting spaces, his room, his work area, and so forth, but also a variety of other guest suites with just uh, miles of marble bathrooms and stunning views 
as you look through the windows out to the California coastline. I also hear there's a tour of the kitchen and wine cellar. Tell us about what guests can see on that one. Yeah, we call that the kitchen and cottages tour. And all three of these tours we're talking about now are year-round offered. Um, the kitchens and cottages tours takes you through some of the guest cottages, which are, you know, 3,000 to 6,000 square feet guest facilities, but also see this massive kitchen and uh, pantry. When you enter, you, you go into the pantry first, and most people go, wow, this kitchen is impressive. And they don't realize they're just in the pantry at this point. But it's like a restaurant scale kitchen. And with your imagination, you can imagine what a busy place that must have been when they were cooking for anywhere from 10 to 100 guests uh, at a time. But you also go down into the wine cellar and there's still original wine, drinkable wines down there, thousands of bottles to see. Mostly this was before the flourishing of the California wine industry. And mostly this was the French champagnes, German white wines, French reds. What about private tours? I mean, what kind of uh, extra unique experience can you have while opting for a private tour of Hearst Castle? Yeah, we do on a limited basis offer uh, private tours. And those basically you can make your own tour that way, so long as it's you know safe and accessible. Um, so you can determine what the tour route is. Up to six people for up to four hours can explore Hearst Castle with their own private guide as well. So you can go and see highlights of all the daytime tours if you wish. Or if you have a specific area of interest in terms of the art collection or the physical space or particular interest, you can take a deeper dive into that with your own private guide. Oh, that's really great. You know, we talked a little bit about the the massive and amazing Neptune pool. I know it just underwent a massive renovation not too long ago. Can visitors actually maybe pay a little extra to take a dip in the pool? On occasion, <laughs> we do have a, a nonprofit organization called the Foundation at Hearst Castle, where you can pay, um, make a donation and swim in those pools on select dates and times. So yeah, it is possible. It's not commonplace. It sounds like those could be pretty amazing experiences, though. <laughs> They are one of those one-of-a-kind kind of experiences that I'm sure make some fabulous memories. Well, it really is a, a special place. I've been to uh, Hearst Castle and really enjoyed it. Having your tips in mind is going to really um, make that experience even more, more meaningful. So this has been really great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Atarius. Jim Allen is the Director of Marketing and Communications at Hearst Castle in San Simeon. To learn more about Hearst Castle and to book a tour, visit hearstcastle.org. That's Hearst, H-E-A-R-S-T, castle.org. This is California Now. holiday season is coming up fast and Visit California has got you covered. Whether they're wine lovers, thrill seekers, art connoisseurs, or style mavens, we have 14 gift guides brimming with suggestions for California-inspired presents that will wow everyone on your list. You'll find great bargains and opportunities to splurge on your friends and loved ones. Head over to visitcalifornia.com to check it out.
My next guest is Dan Curcio. Dan is the lead singer-songwriter for Moonshiner Collective, a San Luis Obispo-based musical project. He's lived in Slow County for 20 years now and says the natural beauty and the positive vibe of the region keeps him rooted there and inspires the creativity and joy that fuels his music. Dan, welcome to California Now. Thank you so much, Satarius. You know, technically, you might describe your music as Americana, but you call it Californicana. Can you describe your music and, and why you call it that? Yeah, absolutely. I love folk music. I just love the storytelling side of it. I love songwriting. And so that's what this music is rooted in. But um, I've also yeah, been so inspired by the Central Coast, by California, just the lifestyle here and all the influences that we have around here, both musically and, you know, just in the natural surroundings. And so I feel like our music reflects a pretty Californian viewpoint. <laughs> How would you characterize your songwriting like specifically? Like what are your songs about? I've got a lot of songs that touch on nature, a lot of songs about family and community. And ultimately, overall, I'd say the common thread in my songwriting is that I try to write from a point of view of, of uh, optimism and, and hope, you know, better future ahead kind of thing. Uh, I feel like there's there's a lot of negativity, obviously, in the world right now. And we use more more light in the world. And um, I think living in California and, and specifically on the Central Coast does give me so much genuine happiness just because of the community we have here, the natural beauty that we live, you know, in and are surrounded by. And, and uh, so that emanates, you know, into my music. And, and, and uh, I think in a way that that comes through as, as genuine because it's in my experience. Now, Dan, I, I heard Moonshiner Collective began while you were living in a yurt in Cayucas. Can you tell us more about how it all came together? Yeah, I had a band called Still Time around here for, for a lot of years, and that was my first introduction to the Central Coast. I moved to uh, here for Cal Poly, went to college at Cal Poly and met my bandmates through that. And we had a really good thing going for a long while. I think we had the most sold out shows at Slow Brew, which is the local uh, you know, mid-sized venue here um, in their concert history. And so we had a, I had a really good start from that. We uh, lived in the in this yurt property in Cayucas, up on the hills, looking down at the Pacific Ocean. It was like three and a half acres, just this unbelievable property in this small little throwback beach town called Cayucas. Anyways, at the end of our run with, with Still Time, um, I knew I wanted to continue with music, but uh, I wanted to have more flexibility in working with different musicians and, not, and having it be more about my songs with different musicians and influences. And so we had a... Uh, my good uh, friend is a concert promoter and it's it's actually their property. And so we'd have like G-Love or Dirty Heads or Nathaniel Rateliff and uh, all these really incredible musicians come through and jam with us, you know, out there because it was such a magical property. We'd play Under the Moon and pass around whiskey, you know, and so it kind of inspired <laughs> this thought of, you know, a collective approach to the to the songwriting and to having different collaborators. So, yeah, uh, moved on to this new project, which is Moonshiner Collective. Wow, that sounds really amazing. So like you essentially started with like a hootenanny like jam sessions in a field under the Central Coast stars, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the best nights of my life. Tell us a little bit more about Cayucas. I mean, you say your heart is still there, even though you no longer live there. What is it about that place that inspires you and your music? <laughs> my good friend actually calls it Mayberry by the Sea. It's just this small town vibe where everybody knows each other. And it feels like a total throwback to, you know, to days when people just cared more deeply about a sense of community and belonging to that community. 
and uh, you know, and it's just beautiful. I mean, it's it's just beautiful uh, surroundings with the ocean and the hillsides, and there's a little small you know, strip, you know, uh, that has an old saloon and a couple nice restaurants, and it just it just feels like. I mean, I never, I didn't live in the fifties or sixties, but I would assume it's kind of a time capsule in that way. And it still feels like a fifties or sixties throwback beach town. Sounds like a really wonderful place to hang out and just relax and be creative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's a slow pace of life too, you know? So it's uh, the people there are really friendly and just in general around the central coast, we don't have a lot of traffic going to the store is not a huge hassle, <laughs> you know, the things like that, I think really, I don't know. I think it really helps. Uh, the people of the Central Coast have a, a pretty generally good attitude about life and, uh, you know, just easygoing nature. Can you uh, play us a few bars from a song that was inspired by Cayucas and, and your experience living in the Central Coast? Absolutely. I've got a song called Autumnness that I wrote when I was living there. It's actually about down the road in Big Sur. That's the other thing. It's kind of the gateway to, to uh, you know, San Simeon and Big Sur area. So we'd go there a decent bit. But yeah, this song was inspired by a, by a time out in Big Sur and, and also just the, the time living there at the year. It's called Autumnness. Are these redwood forests, holy ghosts, remind us where to play. We fell deeply in the autumnness, decided then to stay. We left battlefields and island signs, just hoping to be safe. Running freely through this wilderness, the night becomes our place. Is this day ours to borrow, lost in the being for tomorrow? Oh Lord, thank you kindly. We have seen you in the red trees for the love of my life, for this sea and this sky, for the bonfire that awaits in this place where we can find our way. snippet <laughs> that's, so, that's so awesome <laughs> thank you yeah you're originally from sacramento i mean what originally drew you to the central coast and san luis obispo i uh had a high school sweetheart back in the, the high school days in sacramento <laughs> that uh uh we'd, we'd go on uh summer trips to cayucas so cayucas is actually my my first uh time visiting the central coast at all and we'd stay at this beautiful little beach house right on the sand and then it spurred the thought of going to Cal Poly. And we both actually enrolled in Cal Poly together. The relationship didn't last, but, but uh, it brought me here. And I've been, uh, I've been in, in San Luis Obispo area for like 20, 21 years now. That's your spot. I mean, that you're, you're a local now. Yeah, it's become home for sure. Where, where else in the Central Coast or around California do you like to explore or might be part of your, your musical journey? Like I mentioned, Big Sur is huge on that list. I love there's something about Big Sur, obviously. It's just it's just a magical place. So we go there a good bit. My girls love Monterey and Carmel area. So we'll, we'll go there a, a good bit. And then honestly, we, we're here a lot because we kind of have, we feel like we have a bit of everything we need. I mean, we do travel, but we love the Central Coast so much because there are, you know, you got Paso Robles, you got Avila Beach, you got Pismo, San Luis Obispo, San Simeon. Uh, Los Alamos is not far. I don't know. There's all these little towns that we love. And so we will do day trips, you know, all around this neck of the woods pretty often. Yeah. You're, you're a slow County local now, you know, been there over 20 years. So I was hoping to get some recommendations 
from you for, you know, someone coming to visit, say, for a weekend? Like, where would you point them to go to kind of get that San Luis Obispo experience? Absolutely. We love uh, doing hikes at Pismo Preserve. We, We live in Arroyo Grande, which is next to Pismo Beach. And yeah, Pismo Preserve is a new spot for for hiking in Pismo. And then Montana de Oro in Los Osos is just unbelievable, like right along the cliffs. It's just a beautiful day hike. Yeah, having a beach day in Avila Beach, Shell Beach, or Pismo Beach are our favorite spots. But as far as restaurants, Oyster Loft um, in Pismo or Ventana Grill are, are both really good spots. What do you order when you go to those places? So Oyster Loft has this poke tower thing like poke and avocado and wonton bits and all that and then they got a smoky (laughs) old-fashioned solid combination ventana grill is uh it's like elevated mexican food uh and it's got this unbelievable ocean view there are all these booths like right next to a huge huge windows that overlook the it's like right on the cliff um overlooking the ocean Firestone Grill for the tri-tip sandwich and the fries in downtown San Luis Obispo. I think all the tourism things mention that, and it's for a reason. That's really good. And the lines can look daunting, but it always goes fast. Worth the wait if there's a little wait. Definitely, definitely. That's a great great spot for lunch, like when you get into town, you know? And then walking around downtown from there or something is is a good move. As far as being downtown slow, uh, Hotel Slow is a new hotel, and they've got this rooftop bar. Uh, with a bocce ball court and really good appetizers hmm. and cocktails. And then Novo is also downtown slow. It's a, it's a really good food uh, and it's right on the Creek. So there's this beautiful outdoor patio area. I definitely recommend Novo for lunch or dinner while you're in town. Our favorite is luckily right down the street from us. We live here in Arroyo Grande and we live uh, close to a restaurant called Ember. I think it's one of the best restaurants in, in the state. So what, what kind of cuisine is it? You know, so they so they do steaks and pizzas and, and all that, but they have this uh, fried green tomato with like shrimp and fresh lettuce. I don't know. It, it, it's it's really good. So I would, I would definitely check that place out. It's called Ember in Arroyo Grande. We have two little girls. So every once in a while we'll do a little uh, we'll go we'll go stay at Madonna Inn for a night or two. And they have, uh, you know, the pink everything. I've not stayed there, but I have been there, and it is really quite a hoot. So try describe Madonna Inn to somebody who's never been. I mean, it's kind of hard to, but yeah. it's just like an explosion of color. Definitely an explosion of pink. <laughs> but the rooms are all, yeah, the rooms are all different theme. I think they have like a caveman room and a super kitschy, obviously. Very old school and throwback and just fun. It feels like almost like a Disneyland in the 60s kind of experience. And their pool is awesome. So we bring the girls out to their pool there when we stay there every once in a while and and they love it. It's got that like beach entrance style to the pool. I mean, every time I drive by that place, it says no vacancy. So if you want to stay there, you got to get on that one. But it's definitely an experience. I'd recommend that for one of the nights if you can. Even just for like a drink or, or a meal so, to go to the restaurant is worth it. When I was there, I think there's some sort of like ballroom dancing night happening. So people were all dressed up and it was really yeah. it was kind of cool. It was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good time. And then, um, yeah, so on the subject of kids, for the families out there, I'd say Avila Valley Barn. They have, like, petting zoo. You know, you just you buy some lettuce and you feed the goats and the, the different animals they have out there. And then they got a little ice cream parlor thing. And, and I'll, I'll say one last, just to end on a non-food thing, the uh, Perfumo Canyon uh, Scenic Overlook. It's like there's this little nondescript road that goes uphill um, as you're going into Avila Beach. 
that is one of the first places I think I fully fell in love with the Central Coast. You drive up this little hill and it's it's technically called the Perfumo Canyon Scenic Overlook. And then uh, there's these like natural stone benches, essentially, that you can sit on and just look out of the ocean. And the way that it's facing is just, I don't know, it's just an unbelievable view. So going out there for sunset is a pro move. Is there good stargazing too after the sun goes down? Absolutely, yeah. For stargazing, I would recommend. Uh, <laughs> uh, we we live like a mile from the Oceano Dunes entrance, and so if you have a four wheel drive, you know, vehicle, you could drive out on the dunes, and so that's a great spot to look up at the stars and have a little bonfire. Mm, that sounds amazing. That sounds great. Yeah. I was wondering if you might be able to play us a little bit more from songs that were inspired by your life and experience in San Luis Obispo. All right. So this one is called Good Company. This is, I mentioned the nights out at the yurt uh, under the moon and stars, passing around a little whiskey. And so this is, this song's probably the, uh, the theme song of those kind of nights. It's called Good Company. Looking like music gonna roll straight through the night The whiskey and the wine takes to another time and place Up in them pine trees, down in the sea Found nights of the grove, we can all be free And it's a long ways away, but it feels like home to me So give me that moonshine, we'll get by We can pass it all down till the jar is dry Camped out in the trees, we'll simplify good company Let's forget the world. We can sing a few songs, tell the drunk I hurls, and we'll pat him on the back, and take a little nap. And it's alright. We can have a little fun, ain't gonna know where to be. It's been a long time coming. The canyon is ours, not our duty. So give me that moonshine, we'll get by. We can pass it on around to the job is camped out in the trees. We will simplify the company. Moonshine, we get by, we can pass it on down to the job is camped out in the trees. It will simplify the company. Dance around the fire, reawaken the dream. We've been here before, when this the sweetest release. So come on and sing, free up your mind. The wires that have held us in check. We've been here before, and we will always come back. So come on and sing. Free up your mind. So give me that moonshine. Goodbye. We can pass it on down to the job Camped out in the trees, we will simplify the company. That moonshine, get by, we can pass it on down to the job is Camped out in the trees, we will simplify the company. That moonshine, get by, we can pass it on down to the job is Camped out in the trees, we will simplify the company. 
So this has been really great, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Dan Curcio is the lead singer-songwriter behind Slow County-based musical group Moonshiner Collective. To hear more of his music or to find info on his upcoming tour dates, check out moonshinercollective.com. That's moonshinercollective.com. This is California Now. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope to see you in the Golden State soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Saturius Johnson. Our producer is Kate Eppelboim. Jessica Marshall is our technical lead. John Godfrey is our editorial director. Our theme song is by Aaron Taos. Additional music by Casey. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on TikTok, where you'll meet travel insiders and find endless inspiration for your next trip to the Golden State. You'll learn about cool attractions from picturesque hikes with incredible views to tasty bites and countless restaurants. Check it out. The TikTok handle is at Visit California. <laughs>